The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, Murder Bookies. I'm Jill. And I'm Tara. For those of you who are just tuning in, we've been part of a true crime book club for years now. And we love discussing our books with each other and anyone else who might want to listen about murder. We've decided to turn a love of reading and fascination of true crime into a podcast so that we can share it with all of you. We are your true crime book club. This is our second cast where we explore various topics from the book in more detail. If you haven't read The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson yet, pick up your copy right now mm-hmm. and get reading. Mm-hmm. Today we'll be discussing Lizzie Borden's life after the trial, the Arsenic Act and famous Victorian poisoners, some legislation, and various theories surrounding this age-old whodunit, which will include some pop culture references. Could Lizzie have done it? If not, who? Before we get started, I have a little snack for us today. If Lizzie can enjoy coffee and cookies for breakfast, can we enjoy wine and chocolate? Oh, girl, you're speaking (laughs) my language! So today I have a zippy little thing, again, a 2017 Savion Blanc from Bodewell. And I know we've been doing white fairly often. We'll get to the reds at some point, but... Hang in there. They're coming. The whites have just been going so well with what (laughs) you've been creating for us in terms of food. This white is a Savion Blanc from Washington State in Columbia Valley. And the wines there are known to be uh, super balanced with a old world structure which means they're more of the European style. Mm-hmm. So New World is anything in the Western Hemisphere, with Old World being Western Hemisphere. Oh, that was a nice, nice, nice little pop. There yeah, we go. Yeah, that was perfect. So um, I'm going to pour this here. This is got some citrus notes and some high acid, followed by a mineral finish, so it's going to be nice light. Put a little pep in your step for today. Mm. Let me just pour this a little bit here. Mm. And the cool thing about Bodewell, which I've discovered, I got this in my first wine club shipment. Um, Bodewell is actually a part of a charity called Wine to Water, so every bottle that's sold, they actually donate a dollar to that, and it helps give back to communities in need of clean water oh that's lovely it's very good Ooh, swirl and sip swirl and sip. <laughs> swirl sips mm-hmm. snip sip and sniff mm-hmm. so also with that i don't know where i got this it's a chief chocolate officer wine bar it says milk so i'm assuming milk chocolate but it also has notes of pear Oh. And elderflower, so certainly right up our alley that with Lizzie Borden here. It's one of my favorites, elderflower. <laughs> so we're opening this on air. Oh, I expect it to be white, but it is milk chocolate, so I was right in that. So let's give this a taste and see okay. how it pairs with our wine. Sorry, we're chewing and mm-hmm. tasting. And sipping. It's not bad. That's lovely. Yeah. That's really lovely. Uh, you know, white wine doesn't mm-hmm. really have the same notes that you would pair with chocolate but that's this actually really goes good. really well i've actually done a chocolate and wine pairing and the differences and the flavors is incredible how they can really mm-hmm. really compound the experience 
And that's why I was so taken by the Osti and the pear tart that we did last time. I thought that was really good. It was fantastic. And again, recipes are on our blog. Mm-hmm. And so this, again, is lovingly made in the UK. I'm just reading the back for the uh, chief chocolate officer. It's made in the UK, and our wine bars promise a sensory tasting experience. They're chosen by their directors of wine. And each chocolate bar has been created to complement the world's favorite grapes. So try it out. All right. Before we dive in, I wanted to circle back to our second cast from Michelle McNamara's I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Mark, who is a listener from the greater Philadelphia area and a member of our book club. Go, Mark. He gave us some interesting insights after he listened to second cast. Mark let us know that he used to be the old guy on an Eron's GSK ProBoards.com discussion board where the users discussed the case. Recently, it came to light that Joseph D'Angelo was posting on that same board with the handle CBK. Mark thinks this stands for cold-blooded killer. Now, he described posts as having a, quote, strangely knowing quality to them. Now, this is not only credible evidence that CBK could be D'Angelo. Mark also told us that this user posted about his person of interest whose mother's initials were MFD, the same as D'Angelo's grandmother, Mary Frances D'Angelo. This person of interest also lived in Rancho Cordova. Mark confirms that CBK had 109 posts from April 2015 until his latter, which was at 8.47 p.m. the night before Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. was arrested. Mark's insight on this is amazing. And wouldn't that be fabulous connection to me? Mm-hmm. Right? That he knows that there may be revelations and that have some meaning to law enforcement and maybe even Paul Holes. Hashtag Hopper Holes. <laughs> Sorry, just throwing that out there. Yep. If anyone else wants to share any tidbits about the Golden State Killer, that would be amazing and helpful. Yeah, we find it fascinating to be able to connect some of these dots now, now that we know especially who he is. We'll continue to follow the case and share our mini-casts or future second-cast episodes. Also, one of our dear friends and supporters who goes by Spookmaster on Instagram, that's two zeros in Spook, let us in on a fun fact. Okay. Uh, his last name is Borden, and his mom named their childhood golden retriever Lizzie. <laughs> of course His mom's did. a cool mom, <laughs> and if you don't get that reference, that's Mean Girls. Our friend TZ, he also released a true crime podcast called Tapes from the Dark Side recently. I've listened to it, and I'm hooked. And if you haven't listened, Jill, you definitely should. It's oh, yes. Um, so season one is a serialized true story meant to be heard in order. And just listen as Tapes from the Dark Side tells the story of a missing 13-year-old boy named Dylan Redwine and his father who becomes suspected of his murder. This podcast is top-notch in terms of quality and seamless transitions between excellent narration and the use of audio clips to tell this fascinating story. And I believe a lot of it comes from some Dr. Phil interviews that the family did as well. Mm. So listen now to, again, that's Tapes from the Dark Side on your favorite podcasting platform. Now let's dive into Lizzie's life after the trial. Now, one would think that an acquittal would prove one's innocence. And as it turns out, that one would be silly as yeah. well. Yeah, so, however, since that day on June 20th, 1893, many doubts have swirled about the potential innocence or even the guilt of Lizzie Borden. Many of her staunch supporters, especially reporter Julian Ralph, wrote, there was never any serious reason to suppose she was guilty. Her acquittal is only part atonement for the wrong that she has suffered. Because she did. Yeah. For the I suppose, if she was innocent. <laughs> well, she was in jail all that time, too. 
For their efforts in finding Lizzie not guilty, the jurors of the trial, who suffered the dreadful heat, being sequestered in tight quarters without a drop to drink, they would receive personal handwritten letters from Lizzie to thank them for their service. How nice. It's very nice. Remember, not a drop to drink. I'm sorry, I'm drinking right now. Okay. Poor jurors. Okay. Don't forget that they were so overjoyed to read the not guilty verdict that they actually interrupted the judge while he was explaining <laughs> the process. So we're sure that they held on to their letters as a doting grandfather or father would hang on to a memento of a daughter or granddaughter who lived far away. I wouldn't be surprised if those even got like passed down to future generations. Oh, I would have kept it. I wonder I... if they have any at the museum up in Fall River. I don't know. Well, we'll have to make a trip one day. Oh, we're definitely doing a road trip. Okay. Definitely road trip coming. <laughs> the jurors really became close, and they would get together every year for at least a decade to reminisce about the trial. Because people do bond over stressful, dramatic events, so it's really mm. not surprising. Oh, definitely. Kind of like work. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, the night of the acquittal, all Lizzie Borden wanted to do was just go home. I don't want to say just go back to the murder house, but that's pretty much where you'd be going. However, she and Emma would end up sleeping elsewhere that night as 2,000 people were surrounding their home waiting for them to That come is back. a mob. That is. It's a mob. Could you imagine trying to get home? There'd be a brief period here as Lizzie came back into society after, and she was shining brightly against the backdrop of the elite in Fall River since they had come out in droves literally to support her. But the decline was actually swift and sharp as she began to lose sympathy even amongst her more avid supporters. The working classes, mainly immigrant populations, they never believed in her innocence, and I don't even think they even cared that she was on trial. I mean, let's be honest, she was one who didn't suffer any of the hardships that they continue to tolerate on a day-to-day -day basis. On the other side of the coin, you have Fall River High Society who can really bear someone of their own social standing being accused of murder. Oh, heavens! She just spent a year in jail. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? How many of them had spent a year in jail? Exactly. None of them. None. Exactly. And the, the women were too boring, apparently, to have anything to do with this kind of spectacle. But they went and they watched. But, yeah. It's nice to watch the spectacle, but never be in the spectacle. That's how I feel when I watch Netflix murder documentaries. I don't want to be a part of it. I just can't tear my eyes away, though. <laughs> yes. I mean, what they did was essentially band behind her to make themselves look good. But then when she was acquitted, no one wanted to rub elbows with someone who was alleged to commit such heinous acts of murder. And then you slowly start to see her circle of friends and acquaintances just shrinking. And then she even discovered that she was no longer welcomed at her own church. Well, that's harsh. I know. Wow. Well, isn't church supposed to be about forgiveness? I thought so. And redemption? Yeah. I know that's the Catholic way. I don't know about Protestant, but I feel I, like that would be the, the way across the board. But I can also see it might be awkward sitting in church with someone who was accused of an axe murder when the murder did go unsolved. I know. That's it, true. It's, it is awkward. Yeah. So after she desperately stated that she wanted to go home, Lizzie and Emma would end up leaving their home on 2nd Street and actually moving to the top of the Hill District. Moving on up. Remember from our topography lesson from episode three, social standing is based on the higher elevation in the town. Well, the hill is the most prominent district in Fall River, and that's where the cream de la creme live. The society that Lizzie was trying to integrate herself, that's where they lived. So she and Emma buy a home they call Maplecroft. 
And the elites consider this kind of tacky and presumptuous, actually. Mm, it was really rare to name houses, but it was really, it's really rare to name. Very rare. Yeah. Fun fact, Maplecroft was recently bought by the same couple who owned the Borden residence on 2nd Street, and they also planned to turn this into a bed and breakfast. I saw some photographs when the house was up for sale, and it is stunning. An amazing example of a Victorian home at the time. Okay, I saw it listed on TripAdvisor. It's not open to the public yet. If Tara and I go to the opening, you will know all about it. Trust me. And Lizzie begins at this time to play another role as well. Lisbeth A. Borden, abandoning the use of Lizzie forever. We'll probably switch between Lisbeth and Lizzie just because I can never really forget that she was Lizzie. But you'll hear both. So Lisbeth or Lizzie moving forward. Exactly. So the next chapter of Lizzie's life was about to begin. We know that after the acquittal, once they moved into Maplecroft, Lizzie started living her own lifestyle that she had previously been unaccustomed. She didn't have anybody hindering her from spending money. She <laughs> wanted to live that high society life. Well, she did get what she wanted without the obstacle of Dad and uh, Abby. Exactly. And we don't know if she did it herself or what. We'll go into theories later. She ends up going to Boston. Her and Emma go to Boston quite often. They enjoy theater. They go out to dinner. And... In Parallel Lives, we find that Lizzie actually becomes entranced with a famous actress, and her name is Nance O'Neill. And we find that she even penned her a note after seeing one of her performances, expressing her high regard that she be allowed permission to call on her. Accompanying the note was a bouquet of flowers. Seems like a nice gesture. Very nice gesture. Yes. Also, maybe a little bit romantic, even. Maybe. I don't know. But Lizzie always went up above and beyond. If she sent you a note, she sent you a note with flowers. There's always that little extra to get that acknowledgement. Okay. I see where that could be a thing. Lizzie asks, can I call on you? And of course Nan says yes. And these girls hit it off. And she's a beautiful 30-year-old dramatic actress with her star rising and Elizabeth Borden, a wealthy, demoralized New England spinster of 44, who had known a great deal of real-life tragedy. So... Could probably learn a lot from each other just being in each other's company. Yeah, yeah. I would think so. Yeah. And who do you think came to play in Fall River? Nancy O'Neill. She did. And go. so after her Boston triumph, her troupe made an appearance in Fall River to headlines reading, A Great Actress in a Great Play. She was performing her Magda once again. Yeah, she was known for playing Magda. Elizabeth would even go on to have a relationship with Nancy O'Neill. She introduced Lizzie to all sorts of parties and social gatherings. And even at the time when Lizzie was being tried for murder in 1893, Nance O'Neill was starring as a nun in Sarah at the Alcazar Theater in San Francisco. She became an international thespian, so she was really well-known, performing across the world in Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, London, and she received star status amongst mixed reviews. And it became known about Fall River that Nance and Lizzie were very, very good friends. And at the time, Nance described Lizzie as a quiet, reserved, frail, Little old-fashioned gentlewoman. Aww. You know how cute that Aww. she met in 1904. And as she shrank from publicity, she would say little else, that being Lizzie. So as of learning of Lizzie's notoriety, when she first received these letters and they first became friends, mm -hmm. Nance would go on to say, that made not the slightest difference to me. I want to make that clear. It did not alter our relations in the least. Of course, the tragedy itself was never mentioned between us. Never was there so much as an allusion to it. So even though... Nance must have known they never talked about it. That 
I don't know if I'd want to talk about something. I don't think I would either. I'd want to put it behind me and move on. Nance is probably Mm -hmm. right to pick up on that. Well, we know um, Lizzie would never go on to talk about it because she knew what it was like to be wrongfully accused. So I'm sure she probably really didn't say much about it after the fact. And so it seems that Nance was known as a lesbian throughout theater circles, um, although she would later go on to marry fellow actor Alfred Hickman. And it would seem that Elizabeth was intent on sponsoring the actress, and Nance eventually even took up residence at Maplecroft. And their relationship obviously fueled gossip in Fault River. Where have we hmm. seen Gossip in Fault River? Really? It seems to be the only thing going around there. Really? All that news. But whether or not this was true, it certainly widened the divide that seemed to be growing between Emma and Lizzie, even during the trial. Now, in addition to the Nance O'Neill rumors, there was more scandal afoot. This was about a potential lover, Lisbeth's coachman. Coachman Joseph H. Terald was actually dismissed from employment with the Bordens around 1903. And one has to wonder if this was done to placate a very annoyed Emma. After the firing uh, of Terald, an interim coachman was employed just at this time when the Borden sisters' relationship had become more strained. So the new guy, Frederick Cogshell, the interim coachman, would eventually, interim, would eventually be placed with a new coachman, the original guy, Joseph H. Terald. So they fired the coachman. Yep. And I don't know, did you see how long that the interim was hired for? A very short amount of time. Okay. Couldn't find the exact number of weeks. So they fired the Mm -hmm. one guy. Hired the new guy, and then for whatever reason, fired the interim, and then picked up the old guy. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Interesting. So I want, I kind of, that's why I wonder if his firing wasn't kind of a token gesture, mm-hmm. as if, and they hired an interim coachman knowing that this is going to be short term. So was Lisbeth placating Emma? Here, here, I'll get rid of him. Everything will be fine knowing that he was going to be coming back. Okay. Because when he is hired back, he takes up residence at 306 French Street. Very curious. While he was not living with them, this change was not reflected in the city directory. Okay. So he did not officially change his residence to something else. He always was listed there. Okay. I'm sure things were a lot slower back then, too, in terms of changing oh, absolutely. paperwork and whatnot. Now, the fine, upstanding citizens of Fall River were ever engaging in speculative oh, yes. whispering about Rizzi's oh, romance. Yes. And it even made the newspapers when journalist William M. Emery wrote of her alleged love affair with the coachman and chauffeur. I find it interesting that her love affairs are always entrenched in every time she's in the news, especially with that scandal where she was pregnant. Oh, yes. She's supposed to be pregnant. With her uncle's child. Right, uncle's child. And it just, poor Lizzie, she's forever having these relationships. I know. Now, the truth is, no one has any idea of what the exact relation was between Joseph Gerald and Lizzie, except we do know this. She gave him a heavy gold watch chain with a dangling fob set with an onyx intaglio intricately set with a horse head. This is a I don't really bad. It is a really <laughs> really nice gift. Okay, this is like this thing is solid gold. It and engraved and nice and stylish. It's a nice gift. Now, is this what was making Emma completely crazy? An illicit love affair going on between two unmarried people under her own roof? Well, we know Emma was extremely staunch in her religious beliefs, right? She She was was very proper. They were never married. They're getting a little bit older, probably very unlikely to marry. 
I guess with the thought of her being in a relationship with a coachman who is obviously someone beneath her, but then also potentially in some type of relationship or all these parties going on with with a woman, probably was rubbing her the wrong way. I can understand how that would happen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And in 1905, Emma actually found the stage so distasteful to her orthodox ideas that when Lizzie entertained Nance and her whole dramatic company in their home, the, she, the whole the dramatic whole company. Yes, everything. And <laughs> yes. she had like a huge party where they hired waiters. They imported palm trees, like all sorts of crazy they things. They imported palm trees. Yes. So this, palm was trees. Huge. this is huge for her, okay, this her is, actress. Yeah. And Emma just about blew a damn gasket. Emma became so disapproving of Lizzie's new lifestyle that she even approached Reverend Buck. Ooh. And ultimately left Mablecroft on his advice Emma literally left the house. Like She literally left the house uh, later on, never speaking to her sister again. So she blew a gasket, left the house, sought advice, and then eventually would leave. And never speak to Lizzie again. And never speak to Lizzie again. Remember, she took that oath on her mother's deathbed, promising to take care of Lizzie for the rest of her life. So this is serious. Yeah, something definitely happened here. And also following Emma, a lot of the friends that they had that stuck by Lizzie's side throughout the whole ordeal and even after they started to have not be associated with her. Oh. And eventually, uh, I think about a year later, Nance would actually go on to leave Lizzie as their friendship kind of sizzled and died out. And also know in 1913, Emma was living with Reverend Buck's five unmarried daughters and was interviewed by a reporter from the Boston Sunday Herald. When questioned about the rift with her sister, she said only this. The happening at the French Street house that caused me to leave, I must refuse to talk about. I did not go until conditions became absolutely unbearable. Then before taking action, I consulted with the Reverend E.A. Buck, who had for years been the family's spiritual advisor. After carefully listening to my story, he said it was imperative that I should take my home elsewhere. And Jill actually told me, which is really interesting, that Reverend Buck died in 1903, which was before... Lizzie and Nance had this relationship, yes, and even exactly. before I think the Coachman incident. So, you would have to think that this was—it had to be a series of things. Oh, absolutely. Over time, that built up. I don't think there was like one screeching incident that Emma said, "Oh, that, oh, I've got." It had to have been a, a amount of time that had gone by that things built up and finally pushed Emma over the brink. I'm sure it probably even started. I would think before maybe the murders. You never know, especially, I mean, I know that they were on the same side in terms of how they felt about Abby, but it seems Lizzie just kind of spiraled after that, so I don't know. Yeah. Well, she has all the wealth she's going to need. She has to answer to nobody, Mm -hmm. and she's doing what she wants to do. Yeah. And how many women were able to do that that in the early 1900s? Yeah, not a lot. So she only has people's disdain to hold her back. And does she care at this point? They think she's an ex-murderess. Does she care what they think? Probably not at this point. What's worse than that? Nothing. Oh, she's having an affair with her coachman? (laughs) (laughs) Just more. more They think I'm an ex-murderess. How much worse can it get? Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sleeping with my coachman. Oh, I might be sleeping with Nance. Who cares? I know. Who cares at that point? She found her independence. She has no man. She's got all the money in the world. And And good for her. That was one of the ways to be truly independent as a female back in that time period. Yeah. She was actually wise not to marry. So in spite of all the rumors and gossip going, Lizzie is going to remain in Fall River for the rest of her life. 
She died of pneumonia June 1, 1927, at Maplecroft at 66 years of age. After her death, she was worth about $310,000. Today, that's just shy of $5 million. That's not half bad. No, it's pretty good. Yeah. All right, in addition to Maplecroft, she owned office buildings, utilities, and two cars. If donating $30,000 to the Fall River Animal Rescue League wasn't enough, which is roughly about 600000 today, uh-huh. she left $500 in trust for the continued care of her father's grave. That's $10,000 today. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound much like an axe murderer or someone who is intent on killing family members. I just like to think that people might not be killers, especially if they like animals. That's my true hope. That's like one of the, I guess, one of the litmus tests for serial killers, murderers. She was taking care of the animals. I like that. All right, she did request to be buried at the feet of her father. Emma would die 10 days later of a chronic nephrasis kidney disease and be buried next to the rest of their family. During the trial, never uttering a word except a sentence claiming innocence, Lizzie never spoke openly of the case to anyone, and she would never fully achieve the status in high society that she so sought before the death of her father and stepmother. All right, so let's talk about poison. Ooh. I know that was one of the things that was a major component of the prosecution's case that didn't really get thrown in there. So, as you know, the Borden household fell ill the two nights before the murders took place. So, consecutively, those two nights, the bad swordfish and the bad mutton stew. Yep. And Lizzie was accused of attempting to buy poison, the prussic acid. As we touched on before, was she trying to take care of them in a purely, quote-unquote, female way and fail? Would that have been the cause of going to an axe if she did commit the murders? So in Britain in 1851, the Arsenic Act was passed, and its object was to prevent the unrestricted sale of arsenic. So what a good idea. Yeah, right? You, you would want to restrict that. And obviously, she did have problems purchasing it, so I'm sure this definitely helped. But it added requirements that a purchaser had to be over 21, and all arsenic had to be colored with soot or indigo, and no more than 10 pounds could be sold at a time. No more than 10 pounds of arsenic. I don't know how much arsenic <laughs> you need to kill someone, but 10 pounds still seems like a lot. Well, remember, arsenic doesn't just kill you. Yeah. It has to build up in the system, and you can like check hair and nails and see it build up over time. One of the things, too, but just occurring to me now, if it's dyed, does that mean if you're doing an autopsy, you can kind of see that a little bit better if you were poisoned? I have no idea how that works. I'll follow up on that. (laughs) I forgot to mention this to you, but I was wondering about milk. Because remember, milk is being delivered by milkmen at this time. Okay, yes. Just on a spoof, I went and I looked up milk delivery in this time period. Do you know that it was completely unregulated and that they were putting formaldehyde in the milk to preserve it from getting bacterial yuck in it? So milk could kill you. The milk could actually have been causing the summer complaint that everyone was having. Okay. So we talked about how they had the swordfish and got sick. Mm-hmm. Well, if they drank milk, they could have gotten sick. How the mutton was actually fresh, mm-hmm. but they still got sick. But if they put milk in their coffee, it could have been formaldehyde. And the milk was definitely one of those things that That's they kept a staple. sending. They were sending it back to the people at Harvard to test it. Yes. My but they weren't just... testing for formaldehyde. Right, despite these efforts, the obstacles imposed by the new poison legislation were hardly insurmountable. A respectable middle or upper-class lady rarely had trouble attaining poison to kill rats in her home or to beautify her complexion. I still can't believe they're rubbing this like on their face. Oh, uh, yes, their... the arsenic. Ah, mm. delightful. 
<laughs> Kemp has held such purchases above suspicion. It's interesting to note that the parliamentary debate surrounding the Arsenic Act, it was suggested that the sale of poison be restricted to adult male purchasers only. <laughs> this is because too many accidental deaths have resulted from the sale of poison to female servants. <laughs> As it happened, yes, were often at the store on behalf of their mistresses. This suggestion, however, was not incorporated to the final draft of the statute. Oh, so women could still buy arsenic. Yes. (laughs) It seems that poison was the favorite choice of Victorian murderesses uh, because it was still easy to obtain and administer. Ten pounds. Like, oh my God, ten pounds. It was still easy to obtain and administer without arousing suspicion. In addition, its use as a murder weapon required little effort or physical strength. Yeah, we were not worrying about, can you lift the 10 pounds of arsenic? (laughs) Could Lizzie have taken the page out of some famous Victorian poisoners on her trip abroad to Europe? Well, she was there for months. Months. Yes. Four. Four. Here's a few famous Victorian poisoners. So Marianne Cotton, I think, was Mm -hmm. one of the more famous ones. Um, She poisoned four husbands and eight children. And after coming under suspicion, she was promptly hanged after uh, being found guilty in 1873. So this was before Lizzie. Twelve people dead, they caught up to her, huh? Yes. They, yeah. Good police work. <laughs> uh, Christiana Edmonds became obsessed with her doctor, Dr. Beard, and decided that his wife had to go. Huh? She sent Mrs. Beard a box full of chocolates laced with strychnine. There you go. And she was actually sentenced to death, but it was commuted as she was thought to be insane. Well, of course, you're completely insane if you do that. (laughs) Uh, Madeline Smith poisoned her ex-lover with a cup of cocoa and a dash of arsenic after he threatened to show her new fiancé some passionate love letters that she had written to them during their former affair. Vengeful. And Mm -hmm. also, mentioned in Kara's book was Sarah Jane Robinson, who District Attorney Hosea Knowlton described in his closing argument. Remember when he was referencing, like, here are such like criminals to right. bring out the fact that like class, religion, age didn't really matter. And Anyone women do kill. Yeah. Exactly. So like many other murderesses who use poison, she was looking to make herself comfortable while being independent of a man. Back in the day, I mean, not working was a sign of status, but it also meant you were underneath the thumb of your husband. So as a female, you're day to day, monotonous. If you were lucky, you were educated. Mm-hmm. So remaining unmarried and having money was a way to keep that independence. Like Lizzie and Emma both chose. Yes. So how would one go about doing this? Poisoning your husband and family members. Bumping them off. And that's exactly what she did. She was only convicted of murdering one, but she was accused or suspected of killing six more. More serial killers to look into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's never dull. Never. Yeah. Never dull. We should do a Marianne Cotton. Would they call her should. Mrs. Rotten? Mrs. Rotten. Yeah. Okay. Rotten Mrs. Cotton. Fun fact. The first woman to die in the electric chair in the United States was Martha M. Place. March 20th, 1899. She'd strangled her stepdaughter to death and attempted to murder her husband with an axe. An axe. Yes, Whew. an axe. So 1899 after Liz. After Lizzie, you think she was an inspiration? I think so. I think she might have been. Martha was hit in the head at the age of 23, and her brother said she never fully covered and was mentally unstable. So hysteria, maybe. But we also know damage to the brain can result in people acting a little wacky. It can. You damage the frontal lobe. It does alter your personality and affect your judgment. Teddy Roosevelt, the governor of New York, refused to commute the sentence, and Martha died instantly. I forget how many shocks are in the electric chair. Oh, it's She is the first woman to go. Now, would failed attempts at premeditated poison in conjunction with a woman having her period 
waves be enough to rock the boat and result in rage so profound that someone of Lizzie's stature and lack of upper body strength be enough to cause serious damage that resulted in Andrew and Abby's fatal injuries. Mm. Remember, there was, what, 18 blows to Abby? Andrew's eye was bisected. We know, though, from your husband that it's not that difficult. No, it's easier to chop a skull than it is to chop wood. Yeah. Remember that. Fun fact. <laughs> so, Listen, since we're talking about the Arsenic Act, a little bit about legislation and laws. The legal difficulties that Lizzie Borden was dealing with was going on at the beginning of a process known as the incorporation of the Bill of Rights. Bear with me here, okay? In 1893, the Bill of Rights, and we're referring to one through eight, were not fully applicable to the states. Right. The Bill of Rights did not apply to states. I'm shocked. Well, yeah, because you think, what? What do you mean the Bill of Rights? It had been ratified and the protections were extended to the federal government. Okay. So it did not place limitations on the authority of state or local municipal governments. It didn't apply yet. So to give you an idea of what we mean, in 1873, the Supreme Court ruled in a case that First Amendment's freedom of speech did not apply to private agents or state governments. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details here, but it's really shocking and appalling decision by the court. But it gives you an idea of what I'm trying to explain to you. Mm -hmm. Now, after the Civil War in the 1860s, with the incorporation of the 14th and 15th Amendments, what gradually started happening was that portions of the Bill of Rights began to hold state governments accountable. And then over the years, like the next century, literally the next century. So a lot of years. A lot not, of years. Not a little. Not, yeah, not years, five years. A lot like of years. hundred years. The Bill of Rights began to apply beyond federal government. So really quick here. The right to an indictment by a grand jury has not ever been incorporated to the states. The right to counsel, a public trial, unreasonable search and seizure, they have been all incorporated, like in the 1930s, 40s, and 1960s. So after Lizzie. Well after Lizzie. You know, true crimers, we talk about search warrants. They were not even necessary until 1964. So when Emma and Lizzie go to the funeral and the police go through their house, they just walked in the door. They didn't even need to ask. Yeah. They yeah. Just, just walked in the door. How nice. Your constitutional right against self-incrimination, Fifth Amendment, not till 1964 or 1966. Not, that didn't apply to states. The right to confront your witnesses and partial speedy jury trial, incorporated in the mid-1960s. The right of the jury to be selected from residents of a state or the district where the crime occurred, this has not been incorporated. States don't have to do that. Okay. That's not required to this day. Protection against double jeopardy, subpoenas to obtain witness testimony, the right to know what you've been arrested for, late 60s, early 70s, 1960s, early 70s. The right to a jury trial in civil cases has not been incorporated. And protection against excessive bail and cruel and unusual punishment that has been incorporated, 1971. So think about that. Yeah. It's all appalling. These, all yeah. these things that we just take for granted. Now, mind you, some of the state constitutions covered these. But the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, didn't apply to states. So we really are very, very lucky. And we take a lot of this for granted. And this was not available to Lizzie Borden. And it seems to, and correct me if I'm wrong or add in what you find to be the case, but it seems with Lizzie, 
they didn't have any other suspects. No. Nope. They were trying to pin the whole thing on her. So just imagine, with none of these things applying, they just busted into our home when they were at the funeral. Mm-hmm. They did whatever kind of search. I, I don't think really they found anything other than the candleless hatchet, or that was the in hatchet, subsequent searches. The, the bloody rags and the pail. Yeah, so all of that they had after they spoke with Lizzie on the initial day and then after a few days with the funeral. Remember, they questioned her Mm -hmm. and denied her an attorney. Mm -hmm. Jennings was turned away. And then during the inquest, they didn't allow Jennings to even be there. Nope. On top of the fact that nobody advised her of her rights because it wasn't necessary and women didn't even have the same rights that we have today. Correct. And she was basically under arrest, even without being properly notified of that. Hilliard had the... The arrest warrant in his pocket. Yeah, yeah, he had it. Yep. So just be conscious of that, everyone. We've come a long way. And Absolutely. thank you. Like, a lot of this was 1960s. Mm-hmm. Right to an attorney was, like, 1930s. But it's still 1930s. Yes. <laughs> what, like, 40 years after the fact? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So if anyone wants to know more about legislation or have a talk, Jill knows a lot about this. Feel go on free. For reach out. Jill and Tara at MurderShelfBookClub.com. She can go on for literally days, week, month. You know. <laughs> Rights are important to me. This matters. I get passionate about it. I, I'll stop now. No, it's okay. We appreciate it. It's nice to highlight what was available back then and what's available now today. Yeah. It's important to know. Yeah. Well, there's a, There's been a lot of fighting to get where we are. When you get arrested, don't talk. Just lawyer up. Stay lawyer quiet. Up. Plead I, the fifth. I want things done fairly, and I know we want our serial killers to tell the police everything. But as a general rule, get an attorney. Don't talk. So now let's get to the fun part. Okay. We're going to get to our theories and other theories. Our our theories are fun. Jill's is really fun. But just (laughs) just thinking about all these things with Lizzie and like the buildup, the the prussic acid, the the sickness that befalls the Borden house, would all these failed attempts at maybe a premeditated poison in conjunction with a woman having her period be enough to rock the boat and result in this rage that obviously was so profound that someone of Lizzie's stature and lack of upper body strength be enough to cause serious damage that resulted in Andrew and Abby's fatal injuries. So we know mm-hmm. bonus softer than wood. It absolutely is. There was a lot of rage. All the theories that are out there are just insane. Like some of, some of these things that are out there are just crazy. And we're definitely going to dive into some of these. So famed true crime writer Edmund Lester Pearson wrote what was to be considered the most definitive account of the Lizzie Borden story in 1924. So about 30 years after. In his book titled Studies in Murder, he would come back again and again to the unresolved nature of the story of the Borden murders. And he would later go on to say, there are in it All the elements which make such an event worth reading about, since in the first place, it was a mysterious crime in a class of society, where such deeds are not only foreign, but usually wildly impossible. The evidence was wholly circumstantial. The perpetrator of the double murder was protected by a series of chances which might not happen again in a thousand years. Mm -hmm. And finally, the case attracted national attention and divided public opinion as no criminal prosecution has done since, nor, to the best of my belief, as any murder trial in the United States had ever done before. That's a significant quote. That's a powerful statement. It literally brings all these theories kind of into a nutshell. Yeah, it does. 
Now, in 1893, this was deemed the trial of the century. The trial of the century. The crime itself remains one of the most intriguing whodunits in the history of unsolved murder. As a lady in good standing um, and family in Fall River, being accused of murder should not have been possible. Mm -mm. Authors, filmmakers, podcasters, and more continue to ponder if Lizzie could have actually done this. Kara asked that question over and over yes. and went back and forth herself. I, d- I still think she's kind of unresolved about the whole thing, even after researching this for 20, 20 years. years. Yes, and reading every document available mm-hmm. in the world, right? Lizzie herself would never offer an opinion on who committed the murders of her father and stepmother after the trial was over, and she was acquitted. Mm-hmm. She knew what it was like to be falsely accused. There are also theories that do not include her at all, but come back to unknown shadow persons that she so desperately tried to prove existed. Regardless, if Lizzie has done it, or if anyone else did, why? Let's look at the motive. All right, in books, we've read Edward Radin's Lizzie Borden, The Untold Story, which Kara Roberts mentioned in The Trial of Lizzie Borden. He is a firm believer in Bridget Sullivan being the perpetrator. Maggie. <laughs> Maggie, yeah. In telling of his story, we have Bridget washing the windows in the summer heat at Abby's behest, and that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Listen, we don't like washing windows. I don't like, I don't like washing windows in the summertime. Well, I don't like doing it in good air conditioning. Why waste it? Right. So in 1893, when they didn't even have air conditioning, and then on top of being sick from the poisoned meal from the night before, the heat would have been a killer. No pun intended. <laughs> I just couldn't help it. I couldn't. I just had to. <laughs> right. So some authors even like to lay the foundation that Emma, Emma was responsible. It did cross my mind. You know. It crossed my mind. Now listen. Here we go. We're going to talk about this. From Kara's research, we know that she was 30 miles away in Fairhaven Mm -hmm. and had been away for a few days before the murders took place. If you recall, 30 miles is no quick trip back in the day. Yeah, that's why I quit on (laughs) you. So Emma would certainly have the motive as she felt Abby was trying to replace not only their mother who died, but her position as Lizzie's mother. Not to mention the property dispute. We all know about that. Thanks. There's a lot of things. Yeah. And so Raiden, who Jill mentioned before that suspected Bridget, also had thoughts on Emma as being the culprit. So considering she was supposed to be on vacation, there is no account of her leaving Fairhaven where she was staying and being unaccounted for, nor was she spotted in Fall River on the day of the murders. And not to mention the fact, if she was in the house, would Lizzie or Bridget have seen her? Would she have hidden in plain sight? There's so many circumstances where, yeah, we could see it, but also at the same time, like, how would she have gotten away with it without anybody not noticing her? It's the not being missing from Fairhaven, where it falls apart. Yes. And then the getting back and forth. Could you There's imagine? no cars. She would have had to get a horse or hire a cart or steal a cart. I don't but picture her I, doing I just, any of these things, but then in, again. In full Victorian garb. It would have been difficult. Or she could wear man clothes, but she's so prim and proper. I just can't get my mind to accept Emma dressed in I just what can't. a cluster of a conspiracy that would have been, right? That would have been... She's not that devious. No, I don't think so. She's just not. But uh, other conspiracy theorists, and I say conspiracy theorists with a grain of salt, yes. but they consider John V. Morse 
the uncle as another suspect, just like the Fall River police did. Mm-hmm. Kara writes that his alibi is so perfect that it must have been concocted. Remember? Well, remember, he had that perfect alibi. Yes, with the priest. And you remember the trolley car <laughs> number. So others would say, regardless of innocence or guilt, the rich of Fall River were even pulling strings throughout the investigation and trial paying people off in order to get Lizzie acquitted because we don't want someone of her standing like us to be convicted of murder. Do you think they really had to pay them off? Maybe, maybe not. I doubt it, but you never know. You hear about these things all the time. Like, who knows? I'm sure that it was just running rampant. (laughs) Just the the gossip mill. (laughs) This is true. They're they're big on mills in Fall River. The gossip mill is one of them. Oh, that was good. That was was very good. Bravo there, Tara. (laughs) This is about 1950s, uh, Lizzie Borden being a nightmarish feminist. And Kara notes that this suggestion to the mystery of Lizzie's motivation would kickstart the women's rights into the 20th century. So again, when we're talking about rights, women's right to vote, women's right to sit on a jury, women's right to do anything. It may be. And you've got all the crazy Mm non-talk about her period, please. (laughs) Sorry that we have our periods. Yes. And additionally, a theory that gained popularity in the 1990s. Yes, the the 90s. This was that Lizzie was suffering sexual abuse and incest at the hands of Andrew Borden. And because of that, she snapped and killed them both. I I think we've talked about this. I think you've watched it. And I didn't realize that Christina Ricci was actually in a Lifetime movie. Oh, yeah. I didn't watch that, but I did catch the Lizzie Borden Chronicles on Netflix that was released as a sequel to that. I loved the Lizzie Borden Chronicles. It is crazy. It's it, insane. It, total fiction, people. <laughs> total, 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 total fiction. fiction. But it's so much fun. And it's it's basically, I don't want to spoil it, but it's basically if she did do it and then she ended up being a serial killer. I yes. love it. I it's, love it. It's completely fiction. Lizzie's life after the trial, and she just goes on to continue killing. Yeah, I think there's, what, like four or five people she kills every episode throughout the miniseries? Oh, it, it may be less, but it seems I like I love it. it. You guys should it watch so it. It was so much fun. Christina Ricci is, I Brilliant. think she's like the perfect Lizzie Borden if I had to choose any of the actresses who played her. She's great. She's got the crazy eyes, man. I know. So I'm going to go a little bit on here because I know Jill's theory is going to be long. She's been thinking about it for years, ever since she won the trip to go to Fall River. Oh, I don't know if we ever mentioned that. Oh, yeah. I don't think we did. It's coming up on a year in April. I am the 2019 Lizzie Borden sweepstakes winner. Woo! Yes. Yes. My name was pulled out of the sweepstake. When I was up at Death Becomes You Festival in New York last year, and I won a trip to Fall River. I did not stay at the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast, but I did stay up there. And I won a trip to the Fall River Historical Society. That's where I met Michael Martins. And I spent two days there. That's where I have such a great PowerPoint. (laughs) And that's where I took all the pictures, and I got all this information. This was like they could not have picked a more appreciative person because this has been one of my lifelong obsessions is Lizzie and what happened here. I've read every book imaginable and I just honestly couldn't believe it. And they notified me on April 1st and I'm like, I, I get this email and I'm like, I, being a true crimer, I send it back and I said, yeah, yeah, Simon and Schuster. Cause it was all about the trial of Lizzie Borden book. I said, yeah, prove it. 
<laughs> so I meanwhile, I start sleuthing in the email, and I get Simon & Schuster, and I get the address, and I get the phone number up in New York City, and I call up, and I get in the directory. And yeah, the person who sent me the email is in their directory. So I called How her up. curious. And I was like, damn, this thing's legit. Damn, I won the sweepstake. Yes. It was freaking awesome. Jill and I weren't as close as we are now. So unfortunately, <laughs> she didn't choose me to go with her. I didn't. I would choose you again. I know. I know yeah. now you would. But, there, <laughs> but my point is, too, kismet. Talk about wild coincidences that of all people in the universe, one mm-hmm. who loves Lizzie Borden so much wins this. That, A, I didn't know I'd be doing a podcast that all of this would just fall into place so beautifully. And it was just like a peak experience. So fill out those sweet yeah. oh, things. Yeah. People oh, do yeah. win them. Yeah. Preferably you do them at Crime Con Death Becomes Us and not at a home show. Yeah. Because then you have people yeah. trying to sell you $30,000 yeah. worth of windows. Yeah. No, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't buy the $30,000 worth of windows. Unless you have a house that needs windows. Exactly. Yeah. So I'll touch on a few different theories that Tara mentioned in the book and just kind of briefly glance over what I think happened, and then we'll get into Jill's theory. We did talk about potential suitors in the last episodes, just to kind of lend credence to some of these ideas circling around about if it wasn't Lizzie who did it, was there some other alternative motive, who knows. But anyone seeking to wed either Emma or Lizzie is lost to time. There's no record. We don't know. A lot of theories do like to lend a a bit of romance to the saga. And we won't spoil this for you, but one movie that actually came out recently in 2018, it was called Lizzie, with Lizzie being depicted by Chloe Savaney and Bridget Sullivan being played by Kristen Stewart. It lays out a love affair between Lizzie and her Irish servant. And that obviously, Maggie, did, Maggie Bridget, that was. yeah. So, I, I mean, obviously, yeah. what we get from Kara's book is they didn't care about the Irish maid servant, but again, illicit love affair who knows maybe that was the cover story yes we never know so again we don't want to spoil the movie but it does lend credence to what my theory is is that both lizzie and bridget could potentially be on it together they could be on it together this would explain some of the inconsistencies between statements made by both girls and like how they didn't see anyone in the house and ended up providing kind of each other this alibi like bridget was washing windows i was asleep Lizzie was in the house doing this. They they kind of, they're the same story they tell just kind of is parallel to what they were both doing. Doesn't really say, oh, well, she told me this or she was doing that. Like, it all just kind of flows together a little bit. Mm-hmm. I could imagine that regardless of the terms of their relationships, friends, lovers, what have you, that if they were covering for each other, it would provide each girl or both the opportunity to clean themselves up. So, again, that's just what I was thinking about, like, the blood and everything. It would provide them the opportunity to clean themselves up and uh, then call for help upon the, quote-unquote, discovery of the body. Bridget would go on to state that Lizzie didn't have a drop of blood on her and that no hair was out of place. So, what a perfect alibi for her. Yeah. You know, if they were lovers or friends or they were in on it. Yeah, you have the time. Ultimately, though, if there was a relationship between the two, something would definitely cause a rift after Lizzie's arrested. The two would actually never really speak or see each other again except during the trial. And this break could also be one of the reasons why Bridget would get close to rolling Lizzie under a bus. Like, when she tells police she didn't recall seeing that pal of bloody rags. Yeah, she'd so, been down there. Yeah. A lot. So, I mean, just like... And- so just like yeah. Lizzie and Emma kind of having this wedge between them, mm-hmm. some, something similar could have happened with them. And my thought, too, is if not Bridget, 
then Lizzie knew what was going to happen and did have an accomplice or someone willing to commit the crime for her. Maybe one of those phantom suitors we spoke about. But remember, she spoke to Alice Russell the night before telling her of her fears that someone might do something. Mm -hmm. So if so, and Bridget was not that accomplice, then Bridget is actually lucky to have survived this whole ordeal. Thank God for uh, vomiting. I know. She's a random person in the house at the wrong time. But, you know, Lizzie being in the house at the wrong time, that's normal. We shouldn't accuse her of that because that's where she's supposed to be. Well... Is it suspicious that you're in your own home? No. Is it suspicious you're in your own home when two murders take place? Yeah. But they didn't think so. No. I know. But it it just seems to me there's too much left to chance for Lizzie not to be involved. But I'm sure that if someone did do it out of love or potential marriage, she's not in on it. But had she had seen the culprit, she might have been killed too in order to keep it a secret, especially if she wasn't in on it. So I know Jill kind of shares this thought, albeit slightly different. I'm going to let her take it away. Obviously, we know from previous episodes, she does have expertise as a profile in helping in investigations. And being such an avid Lizzie fan, she's thought about this for a very, very long time. So I'm going to pour myself a little bit more wine. (laughs) You should too. I'm going to sit back, relax, and I'm going to listen and take it all in. Okay, buckle up, guys. I have thought about this for a very long time. It is absolute, pure speculation. And I did try to root it in the facts as we know it, rooted in the testimony that was given, because that is really the only way that you can do this. I don't think aliens came down with a <laughs> hatchet. You know, I explain a lot, though, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, sure. But if you're into alien abduction, but I, I'm not sure that that's what was going on in 1892. All right. So this is what we know. Short of stumbling onto a diary with blood splatter on it with a confession, I think this is the best we're going to get. Mm-hmm. And I'm still not 100% sure on anything. Well, after reviewing this, I don't want to spoil it. All right. But I... I like it. Okay. (laughs) So, the murders take place. Abby before Andrew. But I believe that this plan to kill began much, much earlier. And I do believe that this is an emotionally driven crime, pent-up disappointment, thwarted ambition, fueled by a fantasy turned into action by a calculating, fairly organized killer. Beautiful. Well, thank you. It's beautifully said. It's like <laughs> profile and theory. I'll roll into one. <laughs> All right. I don't mean some murderous genius here, but I do believe someone was balancing guile with a tremendous amount of luck. Oh. All right. So the day of the murders was deliberately picked. This was the day of the police picnic. Fewer officers would be available to act once the crime happened, and fewer were out and about to witness anything prior. And... What luck? Again, this luck factor. Emma Borden is out of town. That is one less person to worry about in that house. Mm -hmm. Now, I think this plan began almost a year before with that weird robbery that takes place, which I do think might have been a potential test run. Mm -hmm. Could someone enter the Borden home, largely undetected, rob them, and leave? And that answer is yes, it could happen because it did happen. In understanding how human perception works... Humans tend to completely miss large targets and scenes during visual searches. So if he was seen, he wouldn't have actually been seen. Uh, I, I know that sounds crazy, but I'll give you an example. In 2001, a Japanese fishing boat 
was hit by a surfacing U.S. submarine after the captain with a periscope did a search of the open Pacific Ocean. He did not see anything. They surfaced and hit the fishing boat. Well, he didn't see the fishing boat because he didn't expect to see a fishing boat. And I think that kind of lends into why eyewitness testimony, even though it's one of those things that people take into account, especially during a criminal case, it's almost one of those things that you can't rely upon. Yes. It, that's why eyewitness testimony can be screwy. Mm-hmm. If you're not expecting to see it, you don't. Mm-hmm. person with their back against the wall by the coat rack, you don't necessarily pick up on them. Now, it doesn't happen in every instance, but that happens in human perception. I'm going to go on a slight tangent here. Have mm-hmm. you seen The Haunting of Hill House? On oh, Netflix? yes. So I watched about two episodes of that, and then I was like, this is scary. This oh, it is. It's terrifying. I need to look up something online because I kind of need to know what's going to happen because I'm watching this by myself, even in broad daylight. I'm watching it by myself. And I stumbled upon an article that said there's a ghost in literally every scene. Yeah. When you're in the house. Yeah. So in the flashbacks, when you're big, you have to look. And I had never been so mortified. So in the two or three episodes that I watched, I never noticed a thing. But now that I was aware of it, I saw a freaking ghost in every scene. And I almost peed my pants every single time. Yes. That's why when you're watching a movie Mm -hmm. and you're in ancient Egypt, and you're fixated on the pyramids and the action that's going on. You don't see the airplane that happened to fly through the scene. Or the Starbucks cup in Game of Thrones that exactly. left on the table. <laughs> right. If so, I didn't see it until I someone pointed it, it exactly. out. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. You perceive what you expect to perceive. That's called selective attention. Yeah. That you're focused on something so you miss other things. That can go a long way to explaining why someone wasn't seen. You're turning me into a believer. <laughs> well, I'm I'm just laying it out there. Now, did Lizzie know who this person plotting this was? She may have had an idea, but I think it's a, a distinct possibility. And this may have been a really secret thrill for her. Completely inappropriate. Even dangerous. Daring. That romance. We're lending a bit of romance to the saga. It, it kind of is in a way. Now, Lizzie is chafing living in the house with Abby. She detests this woman because of this whole real estate fiasco and a lot of other things. She's got complacent Emma, who's just plodding along day after day, praying. Father, who she loves, but he's locked, literally with locks all over Mm -hmm. the house into his daily routine. Literally and figuratively. Exactly. (laughs) He's tried. He gave her the trip. He knew she wasn't happy. He's trying, but he really can't get out of his rut. And he's got this 32-year-old, unmarried, old maid daughter who wants more out of life. I'm such an old maid. I know. <laughs> it's not you. That, I know. This, is, this is the 19th century girl. So she, you know, she sees this man, you know, and this innocent flirtation begins. Now, they may never have struck up a conversation. I think this is just a series of glances, maybe a look, maybe a, one of those sustained looks, you mm-hmm. know, across the bar when you see somebody and you, you just make that know. eye contact. But you get that, that thrill in your heart and your, your heart starts to palpitate a little bit. And now she's feeling like she's such a bad girl. (laughs) Oh, he's completely wrong. He's the wrong class. He's the wrong religion. He is just wrong, wrong, wrong. And all of these were major factors back then. Oh, so wrong. Absolutely. This is completely wrong. And she would never consider, but oh my gosh, I feel my heart pounding. I get that butterflies in my stomach. And he's kind of a 
attractive to this frail, frustrated, unmarried woman. Now, this might have been the, the milkman who's dropping off milk or the ice man. Remember, we talked about ice boxes bringing the ice oh, to keep yeah. things cold, right? So someone who was, you know, missing in plain sight. He's just there, but he's not, who came around. And he may have gotten the lay of the land that way because it would have been dropped off at the back door, not the front door. And nothing, nothing would ever come of this, is Lizzie's thinking. This is just her little secret, some stolen moments of whip-a-whirl fun. And because she would never risk her social standing for some illicit affair with the wrong man. Yeah. She's trying to break into being Yeah, that was Gordon. her sticking point. She wanted to be in that class. But can you resist this secret little, little playful so. winking here and mm -hmm. there and looking and maybe a little wave or something? Now, this Mr. X, he is aggressive. He wants to marry upward, and he looks at these Borden girls as heiresses, if all these rumors going around are true. Old man Borden, he is this cheap penny pincher. So if he dies, Emma and Lizzie Borden are going to have some money, and he intends to share in this wealth. Now, a couple years earlier, he had actually approached Mr. Borden and asked about calling on Miss Lizzie. And this guy is abruptly and insultingly turned away. Remember when the doctor came over? Get out of here. Get out of here. I'm not paying for this call. Get Irish, Catholic. Oh, you have a social class. Get out of here. You're not dating my daughter. Oh, oh. You know, even though the Borden girls are getting on in years, this is not mm -hmm. going to work for very rigid, stoic Andrew Borden. No, he does not give Mr. X permission to call on Lizzie. This is outrageous. You are a buffoon. Remember, this is purely speculative. Totally speculative. No idea if this guy actually exists, but it is good. Well, this is how I would view this kind of person, how he would be thinking and approaching this. With his ego bruised, his plans dashed, he resorts to plan B. He has to get rid of the obstacle. And who are the obstacles? Borden. He has to get rid of Borden. And that's going to include Abby Borden, because if he only killed Andrew... Abby would inherit, and that's going to reduce the wealth of his target, who is Lizzie. Think con man here. Mm -hmm. You know, psychopathic con man who really is ambitious. He's got it. focusing on a target, charming, sly, the whole thing. H.H. H. Holmes deal. Oh, very much so. Mm -hmm. So he buys his new hatchet. He gets some practice with it. The edge of it is still coated. So it has that git on it. Oh, yeah, that we were talking about right? in our last episode. Right. He waits for that picnic. Now, day before the murders, on August 3rd, 1892, day before, Abby received a note from her friend, who's not well and could she make a visit, which falls in line with what we're told about Abby receiving a note. Mm -hmm. Now, she doesn't feel good, so she plans to go tomorrow. And what everyone seems to be doing... She takes the note and throws it into the stove. Burn the note. Burn, burn the note. hatchet handle. Burn the dresses. Burn it all. Right. Burn the house. Who knows? Right. Because she's, you know, sick on the swordfish. She's got the summer complaint. She wonders if she's been poisoned. Burn the meals. <laughs> <laughs> and so she decides, okay, I'll go tomorrow. That night, Mr. X, acting drunk, is scoping out the house. He's lying asleep on the side stairs where he's actually seen by several neighbors. Yeah, that was testimony. And Lizzie comes home and says, I saw a strange man, like, on the stairs and ran into the house around 9 p.m. that night. One of her shadow figures. Absolutely. She runs inside. Now it's the day of the murders, August 4th, 1892. We have more food poisoning and vomiting, which I think really might be related to the milk, as yeah. I told you. Yeah. Uncle John had showed up, and he stayed the night. 
was he expected or not expected? I don't know, but he's there. Another character. Of course, our Mr. X is watching the comings and goings of the house, mm-hmm. so he realizes John is there. At 7 a.m., Abby, Andrew, and John have breakfast. John leaves at 8.45 to go visiting relatives, getting on the very memorable trolley with mm-hmm. the six priests, his yep. perfect alibi. Yep. At 8.50, Lizzie comes down and eats breakfast, her coffees and cookies. My breakfast. Where <laughs> Abby remarks that she is going to visit a sick friend, and Lizzie promptly gives her the eye roll. I can see the eye roll. Totally. But also, why would Abby tell Lizzie? I mean, this this obviously is a side note to your theory because it still all makes sense, but... I think she's making a passing comment. I okay. don't necessarily think it's directed at Lizzie. Okay, so just talking... But she might have <laughs> talking been Talking to herself, throwing it out into the ether to see well, who will listen. Andrew's still there. So she might uh, have oh, just yeah. been making conversation. Okay. All right, yeah, this is I don't know that she's engaging... Lizzie, dear, darling, I love you so much. Let me tell you about my plans. Well, we know she didn't talk to Lizzie too much, but she might have mentioned Andrew or Andrew. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So at 9.15, now Andrew's leaving. Okay. So Lizzie couldn't overhear this, right? He's leaving to do errands. Bridget's directed by Abby to go outside and wash windows. No one in sight. Mr. X now enters via the cellar doors. Now remember, no one has any idea. What's locked and what's not locked. Yeah. The testimony is all over the place. And again, they were the most intricate locking yep. system locked, of unlocked. things that people had no one, in the yeah. area. No one, no, the police were not sure. Bridget isn't sure. We have no idea which yeah. locks. So he, anyway, enters via the cellar door. This is from the back of the house. And he remains in that rear stairwell, of course, listening very, very carefully. Bridget is now outside. She's outside the house washing windows. Lizzie is reading in the dining room. Mr. X enters the kitchen, slides past Lizzie. Definitely suggest you look at the diagram. Mm -hmm. There's only one door there, which you can see into the dining room. And once you pass that door, he is out of sight. Again, just to recap, you remember from our first episode in the series, if you go in the front door, you can only access Lizzie's bedroom, the guest bedroom, and a closet, I think, going up the stairs. The front stairs. Everything else is closed off. So in order to access the back bedrooms, you have to go up the back stairs. So the house is almost completely separated into two halves where you can only enter in certain parts from the back and only enter in certain parts from the front. Right. The diagrams are on our blog, www.murdershelfbookclub.com. You might want to look at that. So he is now skidding past the dining room. He slides past Lizzie, walks through the foyer, and locks the front door. Which makes sense. He doesn't want any surprises of anybody else coming in. Abby has now gone upstairs, and she's making Uncle John's bed up, and she's getting ready to leave on her sick call next. 9.30 comes. He comes up behind Abby. She's assuming it's Bridget or Lizzie, and by the time she realizes it's a stranger, she is struck in the face, spins around, and she's dead. She's brutally attacked. That's the only thing I love where you're going. The only thing is she was more brutally attacked than Andrew, from what the autopsy shows. I think at this point his adrenaline is charging. You always have an answer for everything. Well, I, he, remember, remember, this is this, this is risky this stuff. His first murder. I mean, he's probably a con man through and through, but this probably is his first murder, especially since it's. I don't know about that. No, I don't know about that. You think he's been conning? I think These he's poor been conning. Ladies, I think he's been conning. I think he might even be a rapist, but I think he's been into violence long before this one. 
Mm-hmm. This sojourn up, this was the riskiest part of anything he has to do. And he's taken her out and doesn't want her to make a sound. So he's going to make sure she's gone, she's dead, she's quiet, boom. And we do know the Chicago World Fair happened in 1893, correct? Yes, we do. Hmm. Yes, we do. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm trying to make connections between my favorite con man. <laughs> well, but con man behavior is oddly consistent in their mindset, mm-hmm. how they do this. Now, his jacket is bloody. He takes it off, turns it inside out. Doesn't want to drip blood anywhere. Mm-hmm. Drapes it over his arm, and he waits on the landing, again, listening to what's going on. Lizzie now begins her ironing, which she's testified. She it puts the iron on the table. It's not electric, so it has to heat up, mm-hmm. and she's going to have to wait. Her back, of course, is to the door, based on, on the configuration and her testimony. And, again, look at the blog for the diagrams. Now, Mr. X descends the stairs. Okay. Watching for Bridget, who is still outside. Remember, you get the glare on the window, so you can't see what's going on inside. And he gets through the kitchen, into the pantry, down on those staircase. That was the riskiest part of this so far. And he's gotten away with it. Lucky. Yeah, so far. <laughs> now, Bridget is refilling buckets, but she's coming in through the back staircase into the kitchen. When she comes in, he goes down in the cellar. When she goes out, he comes up. When she comes in, he goes down the cellar. Yeah, well, he's listening. (laughs) And you can see people coming in. The staircase is curved. Again, you can see this in my photographs. She can't see through walls, so she's not going to see him. Bridget finishes outside. We know she vomits because she still doesn't feel good, the poor thing. And she hears Mr. Borden ringing the front bell trying to get in the house. Because the door was locked. The door was locked Mm -hmm. because Mr. X locked it. So she comes to unlock the front door. Here's Lizzie laughing as she's coming downstairs because she's been upstairs to put the ironing and whatever away and put tape on his dress, I think whatever she said. Whatever she's doing. But she's, she's doing a lot yeah. of things. She, well, she's, she's doing her day. Bridget, she's not feeling good. She decides to call it quits. Thursday is her half day anyway. So she goes down to the back stairs, goes up to the third floor, and she goes to lie down. Mr. X is thrilled. She's out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to worry about her. So in the meantime... Andrew's there, and he and Lizzie are chatting about the mail. Uh, she tells him that Abby is out on a sick call, which is what she had overheard. Yeah. She's reminding him of this. Lizzie urges him, why don't you take a nap? She hears a sound. She assumes it's Abby returning. And, of course, she's ignoring her. That sound was probably Mr. X. And she ignores the mean old thing. Yeah. And it's a good time to see about those sinkers in the barn because she has a trip tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Mr. X hears Lizzie go into the backyard, out the side door and into the backyard. He emerges from the pantry stairs, waits for Andrew to fall asleep, enters the parlor, puts his bloody coat on, and murders Andrew Borden. Great. Removes the coat again, re- retreats into the collar, and Lizzie is out eating pears by the tree. I really want to eat a pear. <laughs> the milk chocolate with the pear and all their flowers is not didn't enough. Didn't quite do enough, right? <laughs> no. At 11.10, Lizzie is spotted in the backyard by the ice cream peddler, Hyman Lubinsky. Mm-hmm. And the time is confirmed by Hyman's stable owner, Charles Gardner, in testimony. Lizzie's finishing up with the sinkers, and she's up in the loft, and she's down in the loft, and she's looking for this and, and looking for metal for the screen, and she's doing whatever she's doing out there. And she kind of hears something. She's not Uh sure what it is. Comes back into the house. And at 11.45, she discovers her father dead. Staggers into the kitchen. Calls for Bridget. Father is dead. Go get Dr. Bowen. 
Bridget dashes out the front door, runs across the street. Standing at the side door, she calls to Mrs. Churchill. Oh, oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. Now, the curtain twitcher, Mrs. <laughs> Churchill, comes over all aflutter. Both ladies check on Andrew, and Mr. X leaves out the back cellar door into the backyard with his jacket inside out and the axe tucked underneath and flings the gilt axe on top of the barn where it is discovered by some boys later during the trial. That axe has the three-and-a-half-inch blade that would account for all the wounds. And I, they never really test that into the wounds, right? Nope. Yeah, which I, I thought was very interesting. Remember, the defense had the axe, mm -hmm. and Kara said that they didn't know what happened to it. Okay. They didn't trust the police. Okay, they, thank you for reminding me. Now, Kara wrote, if the murder of Andrew Borden and his wife escaped from the Borden premises by the rear... He could easily have thrown the axe into the place where it was found. However, there is great skepticism, and the Fall River Daily Globe suggested that the note, which Mrs. Borden is alleged to have received from a sick friend, might also be on that route. Now, I think it's likely that that weapon, given the glit on the Abbey's wound, was, in fact, the murder weapon. And the fact that it was three and a half inches, which we know that the hoodoo hatchet, the handleless, that fit really well. Was three and a half inches. But we never inches. tested this one, like you just said. Now, Mr. X is in that phase of his killing, that afterglow. He's elated. He's light on his feet. There's no more obstacles to his acquisition of a wealthy wife. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Dr. Bowen, Mrs. Churchill, Lizzie's there. She asked them to go get Abby because she had thought she heard something and thought Abby came back earlier because she did hear something. Mm -hmm. And that's when they find Abby murdered upstairs. Now, Lizzie is devastated lonely she may even think that this man that she's been winking with could be involved in this and this guy his problem mr x his problem is that he hadn't reckoned with lizzie actually being indicted for murder i mean who would think exactly that a 32 year old still relative well we think him <laughs> young woman would be arrested and put on trial and after a year of nerves and trauma and tension and fears Lizzie's not going to be into uh, no. this playful flirtation. That's over. That's over she thinks, occurring. with all the backing of society, that she is now an upper Borden, mm -hmm. and everybody's going to love her. So she's not going to be flirting with the milkman or the the cabled car driver or whoever who had been flirting. No, no, no. The least thing that's likely to happen here is for her to marry beneath her to undermine her social standing that she thinks she's gained because she's had all their support. That obviously is more important so than a, whatever love or whatever she thought this flirtation could produce. Right. Standing was right. more important. And the freed and acquitted Lizzie is not even going to look at him. It's so Elizabeth it, now. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, forgive me. No, wait, no, no, we didn't get to that yet. <laughs> right. Now, when Lizzie is at the Taunton Jail and Matron Reagan overhears her exclaim to oh, Evan, yeah. that you have given me away. Do you remember that whole mm -hmm. thing? That's because Lizzie had confided in Emma about this silly, harmless flirtation. And do you think that this man could be the one that killed father? And Emma goes and tells Mr. Dennings, the defense attorney, this. And she's like, oh, you've given me away. Why did you? Uh, why did you I, this was between, I can't believe. She's embarrassed. She's mortified. She can't believe she told her. That's what that was all about. I love your mind. And I think Mr. X is wildly disappointed, and I think he moves on elsewhere to find other prey. He goes to Chicago. 
<laughs> and he goes to Chicago and becomes a medical doctor and builds the murder castle. Well, who, who the hell knows? Well, don't right? forget, I think in a conversation with Kara, I was like, hey, let's talk about all these axe murders. And I even thought like the Velisca axe murders. This was our guy. Right. <laughs> if it wasn't Lizzie, who was it? Yeah. Listen, it's it's a theory. And I it, think it's a really sound theory, and you've been working on it for, for years. years. So it's always nice. I really, truly love your insight, and I only wish I could think like you sometimes. <laughs> no, you <laughs> don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know how much it deeply affects you, and sometimes I feel I'm so deeply desensitized to a lot of things I read. I read about this. I mean, we talk about it in our True Crime Book Club, and I'm just like, oh, that's that's interesting. Not the fact that, like, however many lives have been spoiled, how much violence has occurred, but this is a truly, truly sound theory. And like Kara, like every other theory that we know, it always comes back to, well, this sounds really, truly like this could be what happened. But then there's always that one thing that you just go back to and it's like, yeah, but the thing. But the thing. It could be, no, Lizzie really did it. But no, Lizzie didn't do it, but she would have known. Yeah, maybe maybe it was that bit of luck that Mr. X, if it was another person, listen, he ha- he had to be his timing had to be really friggin' good. Mm-hmm. But I think the fact that people were not feeling good that day was happenstance that worked to his benefit. Oh, absolutely. That it was hot that day worked to his benefit. Listen, I if you're nauseous and you're like hot on heat. top of it, the heat is going to maximize your feeling of illness. I think he would listen. Coincidences do happen. Mm-hmm. They really, oh, they really do happen. It's very and the, I have seen, I have seen the wildest coincidence happen, drawing from three different continents, where you go, no, that's not even possible. So this to me isn't all that coincidental. But he had to have luck on his side. But definitely a lot. But a somebody lot of killed them. Oh, absolutely. And if it wasn't, they Lizzie, got then killed. Here. So this is a, if it wasn't Lizzie. And her hair is perfect. Her clothes are perfect. They don't find blood splatter on her except for that one little drip. Bridget's covering for her. You know. Somebody. It it was somebody. I couldn't come up with any other sequence of events. And I ran through all the boxes I had to check with each of the individuals in the area. And I had a column for Mr. X. Mm -hmm. And he's the only one that checked all the boxes for me. And like you touched on in our series, nobody took a picture of it or Lizzie to know what the hell she was wearing. (laughs) The the dresses were a big point of contention. That could have helped. And just the fact that it was the beginning of police days, I think... Everything really coalesced in, like, Scotland Yard and England, where police procedure really started coming about. And we really didn't have that over here at this time. Like, all the police were on a picnic. We know that. So the well, chain of custody. Is that a coincidence that it, the murder takes place? Absolutely. I think it's deliberate. Absolutely. I mean, if somebody knew that this was taking place every year, then that would definitely be one of those things where you knew. And the the incident where the strange robbery occurred, even though like some... That in, to me was bizarre. Well, some evidence points to, to the fact that Lizzie might have done it. And I mean, Andrew might have thought it was her. But if they had this annual picnic every year, that incident occurred roughly a year before for the murders, like almost to the day. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of coincidence. There's a That's lot of speculation. That's why I try to account for facts we know happened. Regardless, and no one will ever know. I, know. I think Lizzie definitely had something to do with it. 
So we're going to leave you with this little tidbit. Why don't have some wine? You've been, uh, I need a lot. To, Finish woo, my wine. I'm like sweating here. Woo. I'm going to leave you with this little tidbit and you'll find it at the very end of Kara Robertson's book. She says, more than 90 years ago, Pearson wondered, will the whole truth ever come out? Obviously, we've been debating this for the last couple minutes. <laughs> but what there actually is one untapped source that yes. is absolutely frustrating beyond compare to us who have read the book, to Kara, to everyone who knows about this. We need to apply a little pressure here, guys. Yeah. So there's the defense file out there. Yes. It's out there. Yes. So... Much of Andrew Jennings' files from the trial were stored in a hip bath. I don't know if you know what this is. It's kind of a weird thing. It's a weird name it, for it. It's a large basin that's used to take a bath, but it's only made to submerge like your hips and your butt into it. There's not a lot of room in there. I don't know. I've never even seen one of these. I, I probably can't look it up, even but imagine. I don't know. There's probably a whole dark web associated with <laughs> that, so I don't need to know. But it, it's an device to use as a repository for <laughs> trial documents. Over the years, the documents were stored in this bath, and they've made their way into the Fall River Historical Society. So a lot of these things actually sit on display, and I'm sure you've seen some of this some of in this, your visit. Yes. And that's fine and dandy. We're definitely happy to have that. What's more frustrating is George Robinson. As we know, Robinson was like Lizzie's father, and Robinson was brilliant. Oh, absolutely. I realized the last episode I did not pay tribute to his skills as an attorney, and I need to correct the record. We talked a little bit about it. He truly was a oh, brilliant litigator. Well, he was he was the governor of Massachusetts at some point, right? Yes, he was. Yeah. I mean, the man is brilliant. Absolutely. And yeah. we, we talked a lot about how his manner of gaining the trust of anyone that he was examining on the stand and just being able to bend them to his will. Like, obviously, he was a great orator. He really just had this manner about him that people just wanted to talk to him. But now I want to smack him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so at the end, we know that Julian Ralph said that their relationship, Robinson and Lizzie, would be one of those things that would be remembered throughout the trial. It really wasn't, but... Well, now we're feeling that. It's frustrating. So he started his own law firm in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, and he actually has the file of the trial. So all the documents he kept, it, it's in a locked box in this office building in Springfield, Massachusetts. Yep. What's that privilege? Client, attorney-client attorney, attorney -client privilege? Attorney-client privilege. We all know it. If we're ever in a situation where we're accused of a crime, we want that privilege. Of course. But here, in its basic form, attorney-client privilege was instituted as a means to never have a defendant's lawyer called to testify against their client directly. We don't want that, obviously. This was later amplified to include the prevention of correspondence between lawyer and client to be released or disclosed. So basically, like doctor patient privilege, right, same thing. You're, no one's ever going to know what you guys are talking about. So this confidentiality never expires and can persevere long after death. Yeah. So here we are in 2020. Yeah. And Robinson's law firm has advised that they may not ever, 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 ever release the contents of that file. <gasps> and there it sits 127 years after the trial ended in Lizzie's acquittal and she walked free. And I want to read it. <laughs> 
I want. I never got to, to ask Tara it. about it in our interview, but that was one of the questions that I literally wrote down verbatim. Like, does this not frustrate you to no end? <sighs> I want to do like crowdsourcing to put pressure on them for the historical needs of the legalistic world to we find just an answer know. to this question. <laughs> yeah. I want to hack into it, but it's not hackable because it's in a tub. It's a file. <laughs> Wherever. Paper. <laughs> it's in a lockbox. It's One in a lockbox. We need the key. I. Oh my god. At least just... the hip bath was drained, and we know what was going on with at least Jennings. But Jennings seems to be the more more not mediocre, but he's the more bland of the two. He's bland, but he was a good guy. He was. But I want to read the file. I. I know. I want it. I know. All right, guys. Well, listen. Thank you for listening to our second cast on the trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson. Join us in two weeks where we will be discussing To Kill and Kill Again by John Costin. Read it. This is a story of a lesser-known serial killer in Montana named Wayne Nance. I was so frustrated with Wayne Nance and Nance O'Neill. And Na- Nance O'Neill. I know what the- we've got Nances on the brain. Always considered a nice guy, Nance was known as the Missoula Mauler. And we'll dive into the story discussing his sadistic sex killings and the victims who may be attributed to him. The satanic panic, sorry saying that three times real fast, <laughs> yeah. and more, all leading up to an incredible twist that will be sure to shock you. And many, many, many thanks to our murder bookies for leaving us such positive reviews. We definitely love to hear your feedback. Much love to Maiden in a Tramp, TZ Shoots, Allison Land, and DQ Wordy for leaving some awesome reviews on iTunes. And to Debbie Glover, who is my mother. Happy birthday, Mom. Your birthday's next week. You're going to be 60. And Lori Ann for recommending us to other murder bookies on Facebook. Lori Ann has a podcast called The Unlovely Truth, where true crime meets faith. It is fascinating. Very different from what we do. Oh, absolutely. Uplifting, inspiring. It is so unique. Mm-hmm. You need to listen to that. All right. Send us your thoughts and questions to Jill and Tara at MurderShelfBookClub.com. We'd be happy to incorporate them into our discussions. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and again, Murder Shelf Book Club. And subscribe to our feed on your favorite podcast platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Podbean. We don't want you to miss a thing. And if you have time, please leave us a five-star review. Every little thing helps us to grow. Until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading.